Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, Work & Co. is looking for a senior developer in Portland, Oregon, and a senior QA analyst in Brooklyn, New York. The University of Delaware is looking for an assistant professor for their art and design department in Newark, Delaware. And the University of Texas at Austin is looking for an assistant professor of practice in integrated design for their College of Fine Arts in Austin, Texas. For just $99, we will feature your listing on our job board for 30 days and help spread the word about it to our audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other. Plus, it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills, all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Brian A. Thompson, an artist and journeyman banknote designer in the DMV area. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Brian Thompson. I'm a senior journeyman banknote designer at the uh, Bureau of Engraving and Printing. Been there 32 years. Yeah, 32 years. <laughs> but now I'm the senior, now I'm the old guy. I used to be the young guy at 19. I think I was the second youngest to be employed there, but now I'm the old guy. How has this year been going for you so far? It's been different because of the pandemic, but the work is still intense and it still requires the same focus. How have you changed over the past year? Like, have there been any lessons that you've learned? And this can be work-wise or personal, anything like that? Yes. 
to take life was not that I never took life seriously, but you have a better time looking at yourself in the mirror and looking at what you need to change. I think this is probably the most relaxed time I've ever had while working because I'm able to balance out, you know, the different stresses and things and the anxieties that come with work of this nature. It's very intense. I've said this through interviews before that doing banknote design is like putting together the most difficult puzzle you can put together in your life. And I'm finding that I had an opportunity to look at every piece for a change while being home, working from home Mm. and evaluating each piece and knowing that each piece of that puzzle was more significant than ever before. And now to that end, I know that you can't talk like directly about the work you're doing because that whole banknote design process is super top secret. But can you give just like a broad overview for our audience about the work that you do? Banknote design is a art form that I don't think people pay attention to. They'll look at the Mona Lisa. They'll look at different pieces of artwork that have been deemed as art and say, yeah, that's a piece of artwork. But when it comes down to currency, they look at it as a volume or something that is used for spending or commerce, a vehicle of commerce to buy and sell. It's it's just a form. It's a currency. That's what it's for is to buy things with. But if they ever stopped and before they when they get it in their pocket and look at the art form that's on there, they will be blown away. There's so many intricate details that are put into currency design that needs to be paid attention to from the sculpture or the portrait, the line work that's in it, the different colors, the microtext, all of those different things. It takes time to do It's not only just for security, but it's also for aesthetic points of view. Mm. Yeah, I remember being a kid and really like, I wouldn't necessarily say be into money design, but like really looking and studying a bill and seeing how it's like designed and put together. Because you're right, it has so many intricate little details. Of course, you've got signatures and and you've got serial numbers on there, but like some larger bills have a bit of a like plastic strip that goes through it. And even as, you know, banknote design has changed here in the U.S., I've just always found it really fascinating how much goes into the design of like a bill. That's really interesting. Yeah. You know, studying um, different currencies all over the world, I see how they've actually approached currency as well to get the attention of the user. And it's amazing how they place certain things on the, in the location of the banknotes to get people's attention, be color, be a texture, even being substrate. Some countries are using plastic substrate versus paper, and that's done so that people will pay attention to it hmm. and not only pay attention to it, but utilize the technologies that are within the banknote for their own security. First, you know, something that's authentic versus what's counterfeit. And I think that's pretty cool to watch how banknote design has evolved and the technological aspect, as well as the aesthetical aspect and how it kind of merges together and becomes a piece of artwork when you first see it. But it's also a piece of artwork that is being utilized for commerce. Now, you mentioned, you know, being a banknote designer for 32 years. Like, how have your responsibilities changed over the years? I would say my first seven years, I was training. You know, I was training for the job. So I served a seven-year apprenticeship while also doing, actually going to school at the same time. Went to the University of District of Columbia. And while I was there, I was also 
at one of the apprentice during the apprenticeship. And apprenticeship was designed where it was six month increments. And every six months you were evaluated to move to the next step. But when I was there, when I first started there, it was actually six months, whether they were whether you were going to complete the apprenticeship or be dismissed from the apprenticeship. So you had to hit the marks that you were asked to do by your journeyman. And I was able to hit every mark. And I did all seven years. Not one day was skipped. I really am happy I did not skip that those many years because everything I learned was applicable and applicable right now. It actually gave me an opportunity to have longevity within this career because of everything I learned within that seven years. I felt like if I missed something or if I was skipped a year, I would have missed something very important and vital for the current conditions that we're in and dealing with the coronavirus and just these, this pandemic, because I'm able to work without a computer. I'm able to work with hmm. just processing and thinking about designs in my mind and doing doodles and you know, just shaping out different things I need to shape out to make to problem solve. And that's something that you learn in apprenticeship is that it's a lot of thinking versus drawing. It's a hmm. lot of you have to think about the entire banknote front and back in the different layers of it and think about the counterfeiters that are going to try to counterfeit the banknote. You have to be four to five steps ahead of them mentally while you're designing. And I think that's a very, very important thing for people to know. So we're not just throwing anything out there. You know, we're really calculating and thinking about every single piece and where it's put. That is both fascinating and extremely rigorous. <laughs> so you have these six month check ins over your seven year apprenticeship. And at any point in time, if for one instance, you didn't come up to a certain point in the check in, you could be dismissed. Right. Like that could be it. Yeah, you can be dismissed out of the apprenticeship immediately. If they didn't think you could cut it, you were gone. It was pretty simple. But you couldn't really go into it thinking that because if you went in with fear, you'd be you would pretty much fail. Yeah, that's yeah. One, that's one thing I would never allow myself to do is walk in fear. I kind of said, you know what, I'm gonna conquer this. And I, mm-hmm. I gave it 110% every single day to the point where I remember my journeyman telling me this was so funny. I hit the first day of work. I came there at 6 a.m. on time. Because I worked from six to four o'clock, 10 hours a day, mm-hmm. four days a week. And he would say, it's six o'clock, you're late. I was like, what are you talking about? He says, well, if you show up on time, you're late. He said, always be here 10 minutes before before schedule. You have to condition your mind to be always ahead of the curve. Yeah, That's one thing Mr. Sharp used to always tell me. Always be 10 minutes or always be ahead of the curve, no matter what. And he was right. And I actually live by that. And the the Mr. Sharp that you're referring to is uh is Ronald Sharp, who's the first black journeyman banknote designer in the history of the country. Absolutely. Yeah, Ronald C. Sharp. And Clarence Holbert was the second, and I'm the third. Wow. So has it always sort of had this black lineage? I don't think the hiring was based on color. It was uh-huh. always based on ability. Whether you could whether you could do the job or not. And Ron, he was a police officer first. But his whole emphasis of becoming a police officer is so he could become a banknote designer. And one thing about being at that time when he was there, and I remember him telling me is that, hey, I wanted to be a banknote designer. So I started as a police officer and I waited for the apprenticeship to open. When it came open, he, he applied. And that's how Ron got in. That's also how Clarence got in, too. Both of them technically were police officers when they first got in. I came in right out of high school. I was going to ask, how did you how did you first learn about banknote design? I learned about that particular job from my father. My father actually was a cylinder maker 
for the actual printing presses at the bureau. And I was in high school when he told me. And I, you know, at, at the high, at Suitland Visual Performing Arts School, you know, under Dr. Thompson at the time and Ms. Doty, they really pushed us for four years to develop a portfolio. So our portfolios, when we graduated, were equal to anyone that went to any art school. It didn't matter where, SCAD or any Pratt Institute. Our portfolios pretty much were just as equal as any college portfolio. And that was their push. It's so that when we graduated from high school, that we could get into any college we wanted to, or we could apply for it. We could make pretty much cut it wherever job we were going to. And they were correct. My portfolio was ready to go. And I applied. And clearly, at that time, the Bureau saw they liked what they saw. And I got hired in the apprenticeship. Wow. (laughs) Right out of high school, you went into the apprenticeship. So when you went to the University of the District of Columbia, you were doing these both at the same time. Yeah. And I'll tell you what's interesting about that story is I was actually, when I went there, I was under Dr. Yvonne Carter. And Dr. Yvonne Carter is one of the, she was an African-American woman and her artwork was unbelievable. She was a contemporary artist, pretty well known from my research from her. She was from the Carolinas and she actually started teaching at the um, University of District of Columbia. And she was the chairperson of the art department. And I remember her sitting me down. She never yelled or raised her voice. (laughs) Dr. Thompson had a very calm voice, but she had a way of talking to you to really line you up real quick. Mm -hmm. And I was right out of high school, just got this hot job. And I came in her office pretty cocky. And she sat me down and she said, son, no matter how good you are, you always have to be ready to learn. She said that she said, because if you go in cocky in life, you're going to miss a whole lot. And that stung me. But she was so calm at all times. And she was the one that pretty much tightened me up, her and Dr. Smith. And they took me under their wing when I was in college and really, really made sure that the skills that I had from high school were honed, you know, for this particular job and just as an artist in general. Mm. They, they always taught me not, you know, yes, that's a good, great job, but we want to develop you as an artist that works there, not someone that's developing the art to work there, which I thought was amazing. And they're very right. They're very true. That was very true. They wanted me to be an outstanding artist outside of the platform of where I was working. Yeah. Outside of those two professors, like what else do you really remember from your time going to University of District of Columbia? One thing I do remember, and I remember Ron and Clarence telling me when I first got there to learn my history. Please learn your black history because you're going to have to be two steps ahead of just in reality, just have to be two steps ahead as African-American because we know about the racism within our country. And they were just getting me ready. And being at a HBCU, it got me ready. We had so many people that came up there to give speeches, such as Dr. Ivan Van Cernema, Dr. Um, Chancellor Welsing. I mean, even Louis Farrakhan came up there. And we would hear all these different lectures from these Black intellects that were really giving us knowledge on how to survive in the world that was kind of stacked up against us as African-Americans or minorities. And I took all of those things and those different principles and just homed them to the point where if I felt like I was in a racist situation, I knew what to do. I didn't just be quick to react and get all upset. I would reflect back on those particular stories and the history that I learned about African-Americans and how we evolved above it. And that's something I always stand by. There's no point getting upset 
The point is understand how to evolve around it and to defeat it. Yeah, there's something about an HBCU education. They really kind of try to drive home. I mean, of course, knowing about your history, but then making sure that you contextualize it in like your current place in the world and what that means, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm telling you, I'm so happy that I went to an HBCU to the point where I kind of, <laughs> I didn't push my son. I just asked him if he would go to an HBCU. He is now at Bowie State University. Oh, nice. now. Okay. So he's enjoying that. I wanted him to get that same kind of background, that same background, like I said, to understand how to deal with just the world as an African-American or just a minority and just understand how to posture himself. Is he interested in art and design, too? No, he's an athlete, but he actually went the RTC route and he's doing very well. He's actually going to be going into the military as an officer when he graduates. Very nice. Very nice. Bowie State also has a pretty good uh, design program. We had on the show, I think it was not last year, about two years ago, I think, Jen White Johnson, who teaches there at Bowie State. But they have a really great program that they're doing some great stuff. I met a couple of the students there. Gosh, when was this? 2019, I think. There's this conference that goes on at Harvard called Black in Design. They have it every other year. They started it in 2015. And I think it was 2019, there were like a group of students and educators from Bowie State that were there. So they do a really good job in their design program. Yeah, I've actually visited there. And I actually have a, I can't think of his name right now, but he actually invited me to come over there to speech. But because of the coronavirus, kind of like just really shut down last year, I didn't have an opportunity to go up there to speak to them. Yeah, But I try to keep my pulse on pretty much art programs within the HBCUs that are locally around here, such as UDC. I've not spoken at, but I have spoken at Coppin State probably three or four times, mainly in their sociology department. I've spoken at Howard University at their sociology department as well, mainly from it coming from the um, the aspect of being a person that has Asperger's and going and speaking to their seniors about a person that's living with it. And understanding what they're going to come up against when they run up against somebody like me and just understanding, hey, you can't just go textbook at these individuals. There's a certain type of love and respect you have to have for a person that flows like I do. You know, yeah. it's wired like I am. It was a great honor to speak to those two HBCUs and the seniors loved it. I actually enjoyed talking about my life with them and they got a lot out of it. I've actually gotten emails from students saying, you know, thank you for your lecture. It really helped me. It gave me a sense of focus and purpose. I thought I knew I wanted to be a social worker, but thank you for doing so, for showing me a real life, you know, a person in real life that I would come up against. So that was that was pretty cool experience. Can you just give like a just a primer to our audience on what Asperger's is and how it sort of works for you as a designer? Asperger's is a form of autism. There are two types. There's a high functioning form, which is Asperger's, and there's a lower functioning form. Where I've always locked in with Asperger's is is socially you have you have social issues. Some people have social issues where if they go in a crowd, they get nervous. There's so many layers to it. But for me personally, I don't drive. It's very mm-hmm. difficult for me to drive a car because of the anxiety and high anxiety with it. And my wife would tell you that I'll be sitting on the passenger side and she'll make a sudden move in the car and I freak out. (laughs) But I realize those are my triggers. You know, there are certain triggers I have. I'm another person where everything has to be really in order for me. You know, my house is immaculate. 
everything has to have a place, which kind of gives off vibes of a person that has OCD, but that's actually an Asperger's type of thing. So what I, with me, having Asperger's given me a sense of focus, where if I lock into something such as being an artist, I'm going to go very far with it. I'm going to search, research, draw. There isn't a medium I haven't tried, and I just want to master it because it's such a sense of focus. And that's one thing I can say about a person that has Asperger's. That's almost like it's actually a superpower to me. It's not a disability because I can really lock into a subject matter and, and try to master it as much as possible. Pretty much as a banknote designer, it gave me an opportunity during those seven years because I was laser focused. So I had no intentions of ever messing up because of how, my, how I'm wired. <laughs> so, but one thing, when, when sudden changes hit me, it does throw me through a loop sometimes, but I have to lean on my foundation of what I know. And I stick with that and just figure out what those sudden changes are where it doesn't throw me off too much. Uh, yeah, I could imagine, you know, the superpower part you mentioned, you know, with banknote design being as meticulous as it is, the fact that you can really hone down and focus on those details, that is a real superpower. That's a real benefit. Yeah. You know, I all through high school, I was totally engulfed with knowing who MC Escher was. Escher was a really, really detailed illustrator. I'm telling you, from high school, even till this day, I still look at Escher drawings and just blown away to the point where I was focusing so much on Escher. I had to learn George O'Keefe stuff as well to balance myself out (laughs) (laughs) because O'Keefe works so loosely and big and broad with colors, even though her colors are very muted and her colors also had a lot of desert thematic to it because, you know, that's pretty much where she did a lot of her art. I work in that world. So I'm kind of in the middle of those two particular artists and I zero in on those things to the point where if I feel like I'm working on something too tightly, I will actually do a contemporary art form just to loosen my mind up to just keep going to make sure I'm balanced Mm -hmm. because I can become very technical. And when it's time to work loosely, it's hard for me to kind of gauge back into that. So that's why I'm constantly doing contemporary art as well as very tight illustrations just to keep a balance so that I can just function as an, as an artist. I want to go back to your time at the university of the district of Columbia. So once you, you graduated because you were doing this and your apprenticeship at the same time, what were those early days of you being a journeyman designer? Like, can you kind of give us a sense of what that was like? Well, yeah, I was actually in college as well as doing an apprenticeship. And I was also a full time. I was a father and a husband. (laughs) <laughs> oh, oh, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're juggling a lot. It was a lot happening. You know, my day would start with me leaving with a heavy portfolio headed straight to the school. And I think I would finish up on campus around maybe, ah, oh, man, I would finish up on campus around maybe three or four. That's That was the early years because I, I would actually work six months and then I would actually go to the job for six months, the apprenticeship. And my apprenticeship would freeze until I returned back. Later on, what I would do was go to school at night. So I would work my day and then go to school at night. And that was just tough because, you know, I had to I would only spend time with my kids when I got in the door, which was pretty late. I would get in maybe about six thirty, seven o'clock coming in from school. I think at that time I just had maybe two kids, which was my oldest two boys, Tavon and BJ. Those were some tough days, but I pushed through it. <laughs> you know, I pushed through it. 
but it was a lot on my on my shoulders. But like I said, me being laser focused, it didn't really rock me. And I came off kind of rigid at times because I was so focused in on the art that it, the perception was that I was arrogant. And that's just one of those Asperger things. You know, people would look at me, oh, he's so arrogant or he doesn't talk. I was just focused. Yeah, I was just laser focused on what I had to achieve. And I had to finish that apprenticeship. I had to graduate from high school, you know, from college. I mean, and once I achieved that goal, on to the next task. What are some of the highlights of your career as a journeyman designer? I mean, you've had over 30 years of work in this industry designing banknotes. What are some of the highlights? I think the major highlight right now for me was designing the new $100 bill because I, I watched how pop culture gravitated towards it and it was embraced very quickly with pop culture and not just pop culture, the hip hop culture. If anybody knows me, they know I'm a hip hop head. I just love old school hip hop. Nice. You know, the Tribe Called Quest, the, the Goody Mobs, the, the Wu-Tangs, that's kind of like my era of hip hop and it always has been. And I even go further back than that to the Boogie Down Productions, to the Public Enemy. I just love hip hop. And I watch how hip hop embraced it and actually gave the 100 a nickname and the nickname they've given it was called the blue face. <laughs> so I'm like, wow. And I've watched how it evolved in pop culture, where it became clothing, where it became artwork or pop art. And I'm like, wow, look at how this design just blew up around the world. I mean, my daughter sent me something where they had taken this design and made it a purse. Wow. I have a niece that works in a in a museum where she sends me stuff all the time. She's like, look at this. They made this product out of it. They made this product. I'm like, this is crazy. <laughs> so to see that design just go out into the world and become a part of pop culture is huge. I was designing it for a purpose, and I'm actually watched it become pretty much like a very iconic piece. There's even a and- rapper called Blueface. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's that's the part I'm talking about. It's like it evolved. I mean, it went further. I was just doing my job. That's kind of the focus. I'm trying to make sure I'm I'm creating a banknote that can be used, you know, utilized in circulation and not fail. I had no idea it was going to become this artistic phenomenon, which is unbelievable. And it still blows my mind today. And, you know, the crazy thing, a lot of people don't even know who I am, which is okay. Um, And sometimes... (laughs) which is fine. People will find out who I am. And they're like, oh my God, I met the guy who designed 100. And I, that, that thing came out 2013. Yeah. And people are still finding out about me. And actually, if you look on IG, I only have 1,700 friends. Hmm. But I see other people that do art and they have 1.5 million. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and it's cool. I just sit back like, wow. I said, this job is that you know, people really just don't know what I do. And I don't, and I, I really kind of stay away from the limelight for that very reason. So I have very good artist friends that, that have reached out to me that I'm really good friends with and they mm-hmm. respect what I've done. And they're like, dude, you made history. When you designed that hundred, dude, you made not only American history, you made African-American history as well, you know, which was unreal. And that, that was just, it's still an unreal experience. And I'm still kind of like, when I look at it, I'm like, wow, I cannot believe this. This one thing I did, I was just doing my job. I actually made Clarence and Ron proud because they didn't have an opportunity to do it. I mean, I would say more than history, you have you have contributed 
to the culture. Like it's, I know there's, there's like this, this saying among, I'm saying millennials, I'm an elder millennial myself, but like in millennials and like Gen Z about how people are doing things like quote unquote for the culture, like what you've done has been such a contributor to the culture in general. Like you need to be in the, in the National Museum of African American history and culture. Like that's, that's major. What's amazing, what's the trip is that I've heard that so many times and I've not gotten a phone call from them yet. I don't know if they're waiting for me to retire. I don't know what that's about, but it's okay. It's okay. I'll wait. You know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it's all good. My focus is I just want to be the best artist I can be, you know, for for me and for my and for the general public. I just want to always be a creator where I don't get boxed in with one job that I've done. I want to be known as a great artist one day, you know, just a guy that has done multiple things with his art. And that's really my goal is just yeah. to be a great artist and leave a legacy, which I've already done. I've already achieved that. And one thing I tell students when I do go to those, you know, I do a lot of uh, what do you call them? Uh, what they call people and do their professions. I do a lot of those kind of things where I'll go to high schools. I'll go oh, like to- career day or, or something like that. Yeah, I do a lot of career days. And I tell those kids, I said, when you hear about African-American history, it's always within the pages of a book. But you've never actually met someone that actually made African-American history that's right here in living color that you can ask questions. And that's one of the biggest things I will say about the 100 that has been so rewarding is that I'm able to speak to students while living and they can talk to me and ask me any questions because I'm I'm living history. I'm living African-American history. And just to see their eyes light up is the most rewarding thing. I mean, that's the most rewarding thing is actually seeing a kid's eyes light up and just like, wow, I'm speaking the history. I can't I'm not just reading about it or reading about this person because he's dead. This guy's standing right in front of me. That's huge. Mm -hmm. Well, I really appreciate your humility. You and I will talk offline about seeing what we can do to get you in touch with someone at the museum, because I think. The work that you're doing, even when I think about and wait, actually, have you have you been to the museum yet? Yes. Me and my wife went there. We went from the basement all the way to the top and I was floored. I'm like, wow, this is so great. And she looked over at me and says, why are you not in here? I'm like, look, babe, you already know my she knows me. I'm very humble. <laughs> I'm not going to push myself. I'm not going to push it. But that is something that I would love to do is make sure that not only I'm there, I want to make sure that Ron Sharp and Clarence are there that are a part of my story, you know, mm-hmm. because when they hear my story, they're going to hear theirs as well. Because, like I said, these guys deserve honor big time for what they installed in me, what they gave me. And I'll never forget what they told me in the back room. My second day there, they said, come to the back room. We want to talk to you. We know you at HBCU. We know you at UDC. We want to give you everything that we know about this job and about our art ability and put it into you. And a key thing they said is we want to leave this world a gift and you, and they weren't wrong. They said, you're going to be able to achieve stuff that we never had the opportunity to do. Now it's not that they weren't able to design currency at that time. Currency wasn't being changed. It just wasn't being changed at that time while they were there, they were later in their careers. So a lot of times they were just doing, you know, other projects, but they knew that I would have an opportunity and those guys worked. <laughs> they made it hard for a reason because they knew it would be tough sometimes when they weren't there. 
So I want to be able to give that honor to them. Mm. And I'm still in touch with Ron Sharp's daughter. You know, we're friends on IG as well as um, Facebook. You know, she checks in on me just to see how I'm doing and also see how she's doing. But Ron and Clarence have both passed. And so you kind of are the one that's holding the torch now for this particular kind of type of design, which is very specialized. It's very specialized. And like I said, it's only been us three as African-Americans to ever do it. And their story has never been told. And I'm telling you, I'm going to tell this story along with mine because they're a part of my story. If it wasn't for them, I would not know what I know. Mm. I just wouldn't. So I understand how that works. And that's something that most artists need to be humble about as well, is that it took someone to pour into you for you to pour out. It took someone to pour out, you know, for you to pour out. It took somebody to pour into you and to labor with you and show you how to get your craft to a certain point of, you know, expertise. Don't forget individuals. You're not you just didn't be birth out. Great. (laughs) It took somebody to make you great. Mm -hmm. And that's something that I will never forget. I remember Dr. Thompson from high school who pushed me. I remember Dr. Smith. And I remember Dr. You know, Dr. Dr. Carter in college who pushed me. And I remember Ron and Clarence who actually trained me on my job as journeyman who pushed me. All of them made me. Yeah, we got to see what we can do to get you in the in the museum. I'm gonna we'll we'll talk offline about this because <laughs> I think even just that that part that you said right there and learning about the history of how you had other like black banknote designers that helped you out. Like that's a story that everyone needs to know. I think that's something everyone needs to know. Yeah. Now, speaking of, you know, projects, you are an artist outside of being a banknote designer. So I want to talk about that. There's a a project that you finished just recently called colors that heal. Can you talk about that? Man, that right there was one of the most rewarding projects. I, um, I had just started teaching at, PG College last year as a adjunct professor. And I taught a class called Art as Therapy. And what it was designed to do was to get people to slow down in their life and just pick up a paintbrush or a pencil and just relax. So I I actually taught that class to teach people how to use art as a therapeutical thing for their own life, because it's always been therapy for me. And I turned it into a course. And they did so well, where PG College actually called me back to actually do it again this year where I'm going to be teaching families, you know, which is going to be children and and their parents on how to just connect together as parent and son or daughter, where I'm going to be teaching them how to do art, to just relax and actually tighten up their bond as parents and, and, and children. But my point is, I flipped it again because it's the same principle. Colors That Heal was a project that was that I thought about when my cousin called me and he says, hey, man, do you have any artwork laying around the house? I need like 25 pieces. I'm like, no, I don't have 25 pieces hanging around. If I did, they would probably be sold while I'm trying to sell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I said, I'll tell you what I'll do because I've been doing all this research on art therapy. I have a, I have an idea. I said, I'm going to create pieces that have colors in them that help people heal and relax when they see them. So I created 25 pieces that when people see those pieces, they immediately will relax. They will immediately calm down. And these pieces are actually in the lobby of a hospital where this hospital was switching from one pop. They were actually becoming, they, one organization bought them out. And now it's called Luminous Health actually bought them out. It's Luminous Health Doctors Hospital. 
And he said, man, you know, can you come up with some pieces? I said, sure, I got it. So I came up with 25 pieces for them. And they literally just hung those pieces up this past week. And they look amazing. They look absolutely amazing. And like I said, they're designed for people when they walk in that lobby to immediately just calm down and just have a sense of peace. That was the whole point of that project is because people don't realize how art is impactful. Art can change how you feel immediately when you see it. Colors can make you react a certain way. And I picked colors and I did research on what colors heal people. And I use all those colors within those pieces, different shapes, different forms, where when folks see them, they immediately calm down. It's, it's, not, it's not an aggressive type of a picture. Everything's very laid back. I use watercolor, by the way, because I wanted to have translucent imagery in it. I use airbrush as well, where you have different colors fading into another color. The project was beautiful. I'm very, very happy with that project. It is a brand new project. It's like a month old, technically, but it just got hung up. Hmm. And I got a phone call from my cousin and said, man, thank you for this outstanding job. Thank you so much. I'm very proud of that project and plan to do more of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I was just going to ask, like, do you plan on like expanding that out, maybe doing that with with more hospitals or with a health system or something like that? I would love for it to go in that direction because I just think it needs to be more of it. You know, my wife noticed <laughs> that when she goes to the hospital, because she's a nurse, when she goes to the hospital, she noticed that there, there are pieces like that that look similar to mine, but they're very generic and it just kind of throw them up there. And they paid millions of dollars for these type of expeditions to be up on their walls. And she was like, you did this for your cousin. She said, I'm, I'm blown away. She said, you did this because you really wanted to help people heal. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so I just believe in giving back, man. You know, yeah. I just believe in giving back. And art has been such a vehicle for me to express myself. I just want to see it become more of a, a, a tool to heal people and to make people feel good when they see it. Not to be an impulsive spender where they're like, oh, I got to buy this because it's going to have value later on in life. Mm-hmm. But when they look at this piece, that is a reflection <laughs> of themselves and it hits them in their core, their heart saying, you know what? I like this piece because it's a reflection of myself. I think if more artists looked at it that way, instead of trying to make a dollar, then I think you would probably have more artists that really were humble and would create more. Because when you start grinding to try to produce art just to make sales, you kind of lose your edge. Yeah. But if you're creating art to help people, man, that's a different level. It's a totally different level. Yeah. We've had a few fine artists on the show before that have said like pretty much very similar things to that, like being able to create without, I think, forget who it was. I think it might've been Fahamu Peku who said this, or maybe someone else we interviewed, but it was along the lines of how the art just kind of seems to be better when it's not tied to money. Like when you don't have to tie it to some kind of financial goal or something, the art just tends to be better. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that 100%. Because, you know, as artists, you're always looking for inspiration. And, you know, when I get inspired, I just start, I start painting or I start drawing and I'm doing it because I want to do it. I'm not doing it for a dollar, you Mm -hmm. know, or or commerce. I'm doing it because I want to get an expression out and I want to get a reaction from people that is healing. You know, my background is I'm also a pastor, too. And I have a ministry called Easel Outreach that it's for creatives. It's for creatives to be to have some have a spiritual balance within their life. That's one of the other projects I'm working on. Mm. And that's going very well. <laughs> what are you obsessed with right now? Not really obsessed with anything. 
my main focus right now, honestly, is to evolve myself as a fine artist. That's my push. I really want folk to know me as a creative, as a person that is extremely creative and can go in several different directions from either art or music, because I, I compose music too. I, I create music that have no lyrics. So it's pretty much in the realm of ambient music. I have two projects on pretty much any music platform, and it's called Instrumental Witness. So I don't use my name particularly. I have an artist name, which is called Instrumental Witness. And mm-hmm. I have two, art- two projects out there, and both of them reflect healing. The second project was geared towards people that do yoga and meditation. It didn't get a lot of sales, but that wasn't the point. Just like art, I want to put something out there to help people heal or to help people feel good. And those that's that's what's out there. And it sounds pretty good. You know, I, I get emails sometimes saying, you know, thank you for creating this piece. It gets me through my day, you know, when I'm cleaning the house or if I want to relax and chill, I put your piece on. So I love that kind of just that kind of background or shall I say response from the music that they're listening to that I created. What advice has stuck with you the longest? It can be like personal advice professional advice like what do you kind of find yourself coming back to time and time again one thing my grandmother told me as a kid and i stick by this she says you know if somebody can upset you they can control you i've always stuck with that so what i do is when when people really when some people come at me trying to get a reaction out of me of anger i just remain peaceful there's a scripture in the bible that says be quick to listen and slow to speak that's mm. kind of walk with that. So when she said that to me, that's the first scripture that came to my attention. And I actually flow like that. I'm very quick to listen to people and I'm slow to respond because I want to make sure that they may be speaking in anger, but I'm always going to speak back in love, regardless of the situation. And that's how I posture myself. Let's say somebody is listening to this interview. They've they've heard about, of course, your work as a journeyman designer, but also as an artist that wants to help people and help heal people. What advice would you tell them if they want to sort of follow in your footsteps? Honestly, man, just follow their heart. You know, if you want to help people, follow your heart. There's something that I talk about where there's a certain rhythm that everybody has within their life. You have to follow that rhythm. If that rhythm is fast, then you produce fast. You create fast. If that rhythm is very, very laid back, then you produce that way because that's what you're going to get in response there's something about the rhythm. And like I said, that's why I like hip hop. Hip hop has an aggressive rhythm with it. And I technically listen to it when I'm working out. But when I want to listen to stuff that's laid back, I listen to piano chill where I can reflect and meditate. Pay attention to the rhythm in your heart. And that will help you produce the art or creative abilities that you're trying to produce. Your heart will tell you what you need to produce. Don't go off of what everybody else is doing. Don't go off of what's hot and what's not produced from your heart. Where do you see yourself in the next like five years? Like, What do you want this next chapter of your story to really involve? I will probably be producing different pieces or shall I say different collaborative pieces, not even collaborative pieces. I'll probably be producing collections of different things, pretty much like the uh, Colors That Heal project. I'm going to be doing more of those kind of things. And way I really focus on that, I look at what's happening in the world and I'll look for something to help heal it. If there's chaos happening, which is a lot of it going on right now, 
I'm going to try to produce pieces that cause people to relax and heal and be at peace. So those are the kind of projects that I'm going to be working on. Just so when people see it, they just have a sense of peace. And that's that's very important to me. Hmm. So you'll see different collections that have come out, maybe a collection of six, maybe a collection of 20. But they're going to be a collection of pieces that give off a certain rhythm of peace. Well, just to, you know, kind of wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? I'm on IG, which is um, I'm at Brian underscore the artist. <laughs> I'm not saying it right. It's Brian underscore the underscore artist underscore Thompson on IG. All right. And of course, people can go to any bank and get a hundred dollar bill. <laughs> <laughs> and see your work there also. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the universal piece of artwork that's there. Yes, it is. If they actually want to see these the pieces that I did, the um colors that heal, that's actually at, like I said, Luminous Health Doctors Hospital in Atlanta, Maryland, or maybe Greenbelt, Maryland. And they can actually see those pieces hanging up in the lobby. It's like twenty five pieces. Okay. Nice. Yeah, when I looked at the project, it was uh it was like, oh, well, this I'm gonna look at it like I'm producing for a gallery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and that's the way I'm I'm looking at it. When you walk in there, you're going to feel like you're in an art gallery. Nice. Sounds good. Well, Brian Thompson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, I think the thing that probably strikes me the most, aside from just the the historic nature of the work that you do and the the reach that it has globally, is just how humble you are. Like you are super humble, and and to me, that reads as someone that is really doing this for the love of the work and and the passion and really kind of reflecting on how it makes people feel like the fact that you're also an artist that does this work that wants to heal people is a good balance with the meticulousness of the work that you do as a banknote designer. So I think it's good to one show that balance, but two also to illustrate the people that like there's a person behind this kind of work that does this sort of thing. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Big, big thanks to Brian A. Thompson, and of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Brian and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity & Wit. Brevity & Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Support for Revision Path also comes from Adobe Max. Adobe Max is the annual global creativity conference and it's going online this year, October 26th through the 28th. This is sure to be a creative experience like no other, plus it's all free. Yep, 100% free. With over 25 hours of keynotes, luminary speakers, breakout sessions, workshops, musical performances, and even a few celebrity appearances, it's going to be one-stop shopping for your inspiration, goals, and creative tune-ups. Did I mention it's free? Explore over 300 sessions across 11 tracks, hear from amazing speakers, and learn new creative skills all totally free and online this October. To register, head to max.adobe.com. 
Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Please don't be a stranger. Hit us up online. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone know about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all around the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.